0: Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm here with the whole crew. We're back. Natasha Mascarenas. Hello. You're back from vacation. How is San Francisco? How are you?
1: I am doing so good. I missed all of you. I did not miss work as much as I thought I did. And I just want to go on the record saying that because it seems healthy to not be craving work (laughs) for a few days.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've been a little bit busy. Marianne, you and I have been back for a minute. How are you doing? How is Texas?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's a little colder finally, which is not such a bad thing. We're doing all right, you know, just feels like it's been a hectic start to the new year though already. And I was I was hoping for a little bit more of an easing in.
0: We actually did have that. It was one half. Of last Monday. That's how long it lasted.
1: <laughs> For some reason, i get tech meme tweets, like, notifications. So, like, throughout my vacation, I would just get, like, Andreessen raised billions and billions of dollars. YC changed check size. And I was like, poor Marianne and Alex are probably, like, have so many opinions right now. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. But last Monday, when we got back to doing equity, the first show of the year, like really there wasn't a lot of startup news that morning and then by like noon of that day the whole the engine had kind of revved back up. Right. On that note, today we are not going to be diving into particular news items. Instead, we're going to be talking about change in how investing is done. At the end of last year, the three of us got together, put our heads together and discussed kind of changes to due diligence and kind of what we expect to see happen in the venture capital game for this year. So, we're going to take a minute and talk about that. There's kind of a few ways to think about it, but really like the venture game has changed and this is one lens through which we can kind of understand it. And so Natasha, can you talk a little bit about how diligence used to kind of work in the venture capital space? And then we can talk a little bit as a group about kind of where we are now.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the word that used to describe due diligence was just slow. You took your time. You got to know these founders. And I think the common refrain I would hear from VCs was like an early stage investment is like a marriage. You were getting these people with you Uh probably longer than a marriage because you can't divorce as easily. You have a financial stake in the ownership of a company. When I was first learning about how to cover startups, I really viewed these relationships as these very methodical, thought out choices. And then YC's batches started to grow. And a lot of things started to feel faster, a little bit more flippant. And that's kind of what led to where we are today, where, you know, it's not just that founders are providing financials and VCs are calling customers. It feels like they're just investing in their friends.
0: I I have an amazing stat. So Natasha just brought up the length of marriages. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the the average (laughs) length of a marriage that ends in divorce in the U.S. is just over eight years. And given that it often takes longer than 10 years to go from (laughs) acorn to unicorn and then public... (laughs) Indeed, these relationships are, in fact, longer than many marriages. Oh, oh yes. my God.
2: <laughs> Marianne,
0: though, so that was the way things worked. But now it does seem to have changed. There's a lot more rapid fire deal making and so forth. And so, you know, what's happened to the diligence game in this new reality we've been in now for a couple of years?
2: Yeah, I know we've talked about this a few times on equity already with all these deals coming closer and closer together. Valuations going really high in a short amount of time. It's, it's a little worrisome because it feels like due diligence has gone out the window for the most part. And there's a lot of FOMO going on among investors trying to get in on all these deals at an early stage. And it's, I feel like it's actually tables have turned. It's the founders interviewing the investors and vetting investors as opposed to the other way around which that is not necessarily a bad thing.
1: And Alex, I saw you get into like a little bit of like a Twitter conversation with Kate Clark and Hunter last week about due diligence. And I guess this continuing, the lack of due diligence continuing, even though, especially maybe because there's like not too many ramifications for startups that fail these days. But I guess like I would love to hear more about where you think due diligence is heading. I know we'll get into it, but.
0: Yeah, no, you bring up a lot of good stuff there. So um, there's been a commodification of capital. Essentially, there's been a lot more money kind of bouncing around the startup game. And that has led to, as Marianne pointed out, a a flip of the old kind of like structure. Because in the old days, there wasn't a lot of money and there were a lot of folks that had ideas. And so they had to kind of compete to get venture capital attention and then get into a deal and so forth. Now there's many, many more, uh, I would say, active checkbooks than there are hot startups. There's lots of startups, but not that many that are like the hottest ones. And so there's more of a competition that changes the game and so forth. But another thing that, that you brought up, Natasha, is that, you know, when everyone is, is, is writing checks this quickly, you get kind of de-risked as an investor pretty fast. So let's say that I invest in a company at like a, a 10 million pre and I put in a million. And then three months later, Tiger drops 40 million into it. Well, they have really helped me out because now I look like a genius inside of my firm, such a big, nice markup so quickly. And the startup has tons of money to figure things out. They're kind of giving them runway. And so maybe there's some kind of perverse logic to this, but that doesn't mean that uh, not diligence is better than diligence, as we learned from the recent Theranos uh, trial. I think we all watched that pretty closely. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Turns out diligence often does matter.
2: Well, it does clearly. And I think diligence should not always be the traditional things that we've thought about, like we we were just saying, looking at financials, calling customers. I mean, the problem with all this is that VCs tend to look within their, their circle when they want to back companies. And this excludes still a lot of other founders that are great founders with brilliant ideas because they don't have that same network. So unfortunately, my concern with this whole lack of due diligence is still excluding a lot of the people that have historically been excluded to having access to capital.
1: Yeah, Marianne, I think you just perfectly soft launched your like take for today's episode. And I think that we should keep going with it. Tell us a little bit about, I guess, how you're thinking due diligence will change in 2022,
2: given what you're saying about FOMO. Yeah, you know, we saw the failure of Quibi a well, couple of years now, but it was an example of founders that had big names getting money basically because of their names, right? Yeah. And that's just not fair. It's just not It's just not fair. It failed miserably. Perfect example of that. I'd like to see investors, you know, really look deeper, look further out, look to different cities, people who aren't in their little networks, people who've done really kick-ass things at a startup they worked at that was, like, game-changing at that particular startup and who just everyone raves about about just – Really knowing their stuff and being awesome to work with or work for. I, that's the kind of diligence I'd like to see investors do.
0: So, just parsing this, Marianne, your point is that because FOMO is such an important driver of venture capital activity, and because the best known people are the easiest drivers of FOMO, this mm-hmm. effect can essentially constrain certain amounts of investment to just kind of already established names versus looking out more afield towards people that may not have as much of a profile, but are perhaps exactly as competent.
2: Exactly. That's the part of all this that concerns me and that I'd like to see change.
0: Yeah. That's an optimistic take. I think I'm here for it. I wonder if we'll see venture capitalists brave enough to follow that, or if they're going to keep investing in folks that have already done pretty well. It's easier to back someone who's founded a company before than a new person, because you know they've already kind of walked the path a little bit. That doesn't mean you'll get better returns per se. But let's keep talking about this. Natasha, you put a very interesting thesis that I wanted to get to, which was about the importance of back channeling uh, in this high paced deal making environment and how that's going to end up helping or hindering diligence. Talk us through that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, kind of similar to what you're saying, Marianne, on like networks needing to be broken open. I think for so long with fundraising, especially first check fundraising, it really comes down to who you know, which is, you know, depending on who you are, can be a fortunate or unfortunate reality Mm -hmm. in building your startup. But when it comes to back-channeling, I am optimistic, again, that there could be some room for a leveling of playing fields if we start to see founders and investors get more comfortable with addressing the fact that people are going to ping everyone who is in your concentric circle about you, maybe even before they pitch you. So I I have a feeling that we're going to see a lot more back-channeling happening on the founder side, so founders gut-checking portfolio companies of investors they're looking at and and getting really comfortable asking harsher questions and and that take is really inspired by a tweet from a vc who shall rename unnamed mostly because i forget who it was nah. <laughs> they said like you know we haven't even met a startup founder yet but they've pinged a portfolio company i think it's super inappropriate essentially and a lot what? of vcs were yeah a lot of vcs were like that's not inappropriate that's just a founder doing their homework their own due
2: diligence yeah as yeah. they should
1: so i yeah. think that is like a very archaic mindset and hopefully see even less of it going forward
2: Going back to what we said earlier in the show, I I do feel like obviously the the founders kind of have the upper hand right now. So they have to look at things besides money. They have to look at what an investor can bring to them that will help them grow their company besides just capital. Because any any firm, anybody can just hand you cash, right? But what can they bring you in terms of advice or specific operating experience that they've had that would be valuable to you? And are they just, you know, decent people for God's sake? I mean, you don't want an asshole investing in your company, I would, I would hope. I mean, <laughs> they can be, you know, a little bit of an asshole, but like there's different degrees of assholishness, I think. <laughs> Is, is it
0: holishness or is it holery? is really the question that i now have
2: <laughs> headline alert
0: i don't even know how we can bleep this section to make it appropriate for the show so that's one for the producers welcome back to the year chris and grace on the on, on the point though about like the tweet natasha you were talking about when the vc was irked that the potential founder investment was talking to portfolio companies i mean that's insane because VCs are famous, well, they used to call customers to get kind of customer feedback on how a product was working in the market. Did the customer actually like it? Were they going to renew to get kind of on the ground intelligence? Why wouldn't a founder do the same? Because- well,
2: I if mean, you're, if you're irked, that means that maybe you have a reason that you don't want this founder talking to your portfolio companies, right? Like, why wouldn't you just welcome that?
0: Marianne, you've been married longer than I've been married. And I don't know how you guys handle this in, in your relationship, but like, if my wife like reached for my- like we offer it on the couch, right? Just sitting there and we only have one of the phones. And so we'll just kind of share it to look things up and, to, you know, whatever. But if she like reached for my phone to Google something and I was like, oh, no, don't look at that.
2: Exactly. It would be a conversation. of all. Totally. Right? Exactly. Totally. It raises suspicion.
1: Unless you're planning a surprise holiday for her next week. There's no reason
2: for you to be hiding stuff from her.
0: She's known me long enough to know that we're not in danger of that.
2: No, that's exactly <laughs> the point. Like if you have if you have nothing to hide, then you would welcome that sort of like inquiry from a, a founder that you're looking to back. Totally. On the inclusivity
1: part of back channeling, because of course it could just be like this founder's fund person says that this Sequoia portfolio company is great and that's not really moving the needle. I would love to see like some of the platform attempts at making back channeling more accessible actually work. I don't know if you guys have seen these platforms throughout all of tech cycles as well, but like there's a couple platforms. One is actually just called Back Channel. There's also like VC Guide and a couple others, but they've they've never taken off because there's no way to like grant anonymity when you're like slandering some VC's name.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: I, I don't know. There should be a way for someone who's not in startups to be able to gut check their lead investor if they don't have any connections.
0: Uh, I mean, you're dead on. I mean, for mm-hmm. example, I think way back in the day, this was called The Funded, I think was like the venture capital mm. like like list and people were going to rate VCs based on like, you know, feedback, did they ghost me or whatever. And as it turns out, like with any sort of relationship that's papered over with PR announcements and kind of hype, there's a lot of jerky behavior. And also like, I have some just friends who are founders. And so I know stuff about certain VCs that are, it's not like in a news context and like friends complaining context. And it can be really miserable to have the wrong person on your board. Like they can just make your life hell. So to me, this makes a lot of good sense. I want to kind of pivot us though a little bit and talk about fun size. Because we as a group cover everything from, you know, Natasha is talking to the seed stage. Mary and I talk a little bit to the later stages, but you know, there's a huge diversity of fun sizes out there. And I'm kind of curious to see if we're going to see a diligence differential based on fun size. And here's kind of my hypothesis. The late-stage money that's coming in, like Series B+, plus, let's just call that later-stage-ish for now because those checks can, get, can be $50 million or more now. I think that they're in a rush to get capital deployed because they have large funds and there's only so many places to put the money to work. And so I think this is going to kind of like almost like de-diligence the later stages to some degree and kind of move more of the diligence to the early-stage investors who have kind of fewer resources with which to do it. And so I wonder if there's going to be kind of a, a, a buck passing on the diligence front that's going to end Mm. up with no one kind of getting what they want, even though I do think it'll scoot it a little bit more towards the uh, kind of seed and Series A-ish investors. And and I'm curious if that rings true or if I'm overly analyzing and splitting the hairs here.
2: I think the stakes are greater for the these investors that are backing at like the pre-seed and seed stage. So there's naturally going to be more diligence on their part. I don't think that's necessarily going to change. And since they're, they don't have, you know, the the huge amounts of capital to deploy, they're going to be more thoughtful in how they deploy their funds. A lot of that too will be based on networks. So I'm not saying that yeah. that's you know, a lot of that clearly going to be based on network, but definitely you're, you're right. We're going to see more diligence in the earlier stages, but that diligence might look different.
1: Also, the dynamic of unicorns being less unicorn-y at this stage is one thing I want to talk about when it comes to your thesis, Alex, because... Part of me is like, OK, maybe it's like the recorrection that's going to cause funds to like admit that they're changing the way they're doing due diligence or leaning on smaller fund sizes to do due diligence. Or is it like implosions? I just I guess I'm wondering like how unicorns fit into all of this.
0: Yeah, I know. It's a really great question. And the first thing that came to mind when you were just saying that was, you know, kind of the vision fund one. And do you remember the kind of the splashes that SoftBank was making when they were writing these, you know, nine oh, yeah. figure checks? into companies that some of us just hadn't even heard of. And we were like, someone raised who? Raised a what? From where? And it was <laughs> insane to us. And, and it turned out that Masha son, famously an investor who cuts checks from his gut, likes to get to know founders. And, and no, this is not a diss. He's made, yeah, he's, no. he's both made and lost much more money than I have. So, you know, God bless him for having stomach lining of titanium. Um, <laughs> but but I think that like after that moment, there was kind of a a, um, a return to normalcy when the vision fund one was kind of deployed before tiger really came in and started to write machine gun style, rapid fire checks. And then tiger showed up and started writing everyone checks. And I feel like that kind of pulled us back in the unicorn context, away from traditional diligence and a bit more towards doing things quickly. Now, as, as a caveat, I am aware that everyone likes to talk about how tiger does pre diligence on investments, but it turns out I've heard from people. They just hire consultants from McKinsey. So they're outsourcing their which is they're not really doing it. That's oh, my yeah. take. I mean, like if I have someone else do my homework, did I really take AP chemistry? No. Right. I paid someone to do it. And like, you know, get, get your fingers dirty. I mean, I don't know. If you don't have enough time to do your own diligence, maybe you're writing too many checks. That's kind of my boring take.
2: I mean, I think as a founder, like I understand the big name, Tiger, can make you feel like, oh, wow, build credibility and all, all these things. But at the same time, I want an investor who's invested. And me personally, like they give a shit and they might call me and say, you know, what's going on this week? Do you need help with this? What, you know, I would want that hands on type of investor as well. So maybe I don't know, maybe it's like a combination of a tiger and someone who's super hands on, but maybe there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Are, are we doing like the Goldilocks
0: thing now with like the porridge was too hot yes, yes. and, and then <laughs> somewhere in the middle? I, I, I think, Marianne, I agree with you. I think you're right from my perspective that I would also want someone who has an, an, an extended hand and a, a phone number that I could bring. But, you know, you and I aren't founders because I, I, I think we lack a certain and I, this is not at all a rude statement. It may come out across that way, but it's not meant to be like maybe we lack a certain level of self-confidence. You know, and I, I think to be a founder, you have to say, the world is wrong. I'm going to build a company and fix it and make a bunch of money in the meantime. And, you know, I don't wake up in the morning and think that I've got any sort of solution to anything. But maybe if you're a founder, you don't want as much handholding because you have that confidence already
2: confidence or arrogance right because i think right there's a there's a fine line between that i always think like if there was a hill that i was ready to die
1: on i would do it and it's probably like me defending journalism as a career choice
0: (laughs) so that's what i'm doing right now wait wait who's attacking that hill in your life because i'll beat them up
1: (laughs) we'll talk about it offline (laughs) no I, i i think like that's like i guess getting into like what makes a founder want to be a founder I always think that it has to come down to like a founder, like not being able to sleep at night, but that might just be me reading too many like startup origin stories.
0: Uh, It's kind of (laughs) the president thing to me, like to run for president, you have to have a certain level of of self regard, right? Like you're not going to put yourself through that process, your your family, unless you really think you have something to offer or you're absolutely insane. Thin line founders have to have uh, probably just a sense of, um, you know, willing to to risk it. And I, I'm just curious how that would play into the desire for handholding, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and just to broaden it out a little bit, one thing I'm thinking of as we're talking this through is like, are the incentives for proper due diligence there? Like, I think VCs can probably lean on the fact that like their structure is not set up to have every startup return their entire fund. And so will we ever see due diligence really become this like a world that we're painting, which is like smarter and
2: stronger and more buttoned up? Or will it just continue to unravel in a way? I mean, that's a good point, because I think all these VC firms know that only a certain percentage of their portfolio will go on to be like huge successes or provide them an exit. So so they're taking these bets, knowing that not every company they invest in is going to go on to be that next breakout company.
0: Okay, so Matt Murphy, formerly of Kleiner, he's at Menlo now. I've known Matt for a thousand years, and uh, I, I use him as kind of a sounding board whenever I need to talk something through. And so I, I hit him up about the kind of downturn question, like what would that look like? I wrote about this for TC. But one thing he said in that interview was the failure rate for startups is going down. Like it used to be like you'd expect like most startups would kind of die. But now I think in kind of this this SaaS world where you can build recurring revenues, it's much harder to kill a company. I think that. There's been a decrease in the failure slash death rate, which may give people a more confidence to do less rigorous diligence. And also, if you just expect someone's going to you know, write your investment up 100% in six months because the market's so hot and you have this lower failure rate, I mean, maybe writing a lot of checks is just the smart thing. Maybe diligence is for chumps.
2: Pressure invariably comes with a lot of capital. Right. And so if you're a founder and you're wanting to take your startup in a certain direction, is it always worth it to take a lot of money? Like, I think there are some founders who actually want to limit the amount of capital that they take in because they don't want that kind of pressure.
0: Yeah. The thing that comes to mind when you say that, Marianne, is the is the story of a poetry magazine that my dad told me about. And this is probably an apocryphal story that I have now heard secondhand from my dad. And this was several years ago. So I'm going to paraphrase. But there was a small (laughs) poetry magazine that was running on a shoestring. It had no money. I mean, let's be real. It was a poetry magazine.
1: Shocker. Like, it's not exactly going
0: to be out there storming the NASDAQ. And someone died and left the magazine a ton of money. And then the magazine kind of just fell apart because suddenly there was just too much money around. No one knew what to do with it. And it kind of collapsed. This has been kind of the argument about not overfunding mm-hmm. early stage companies and that mm-hmm. you should raise enough capital to hit certain milestones, reach those and then raise again. In today's game, with so much capital and lower diligence, I think founders probably aren't thinking through the questions you're asking, and they're not thinking about the extra pressure that comes with all that extra money. But as your capital base in your startup grows, so does the institutional pressure for success and, and an exit. And right. so there, there's a trade-off there. It feels like you just got more runway, but you really just bought yourself more responsibility.
2: Yeah. And I mean, when I'm interviewing companies and I hear about a lean and mean team, I find that more impressive. Like if there's a company that's only got like 25 employees and they're like, Their revenues growing, I don't know, 100% year over year. That's more impressive to me than the companies that are doubling headcount and just bleeding cash left and right and just sort of spending like haphazardly. Now, I'm not knocking those companies that are on major hiring sprees. I'm not saying they're all doing something wrong, not at all. But I'm just saying there's something to be said for being capital efficient. And I think whether you've raised 1 million or 100 million, That mindset should always be there. Be capital efficient.
1: Well said. The same way, like there's like that tech cycle in terms of sectors. We'll see a tech cycle maybe in terms of what is more of a signal right now. Like in the before times, a small team, everyone was a small team. So it's fine. Now it's like everyone's a big team. So if you're a small team, it matters. And I could even see a return to like bootstrapping being really, really cool and a headline.
0: Okay okay, Okay. yes, the three of us would love that because we love love a scrappy founder because a bootstrap bootstrap company does not roll into a call with us with nine people on the phone. It's usually one person, the CEO, and we get to talk to them and it's great. But I I just, I wonder if if the ambition that founders have almost by definition, coupled to capital availability will always lead to kind of an overstuffing of the hen. How could it not? And then the risk there is just back on the VC side because the founder already got the money. Right. And they, of course, want to return it and do all that good stuff. But like, really, the VC is the one who has to go back to their investors, you know, family offices and other plutocrats and pension funds. Yes, there is some kind of public service element, but like it's not always that money and, and tell them that this that they put money into a thing that failed. But ah, man, I just I struggle to have the same level of confidence as investors who are writing these rapid fire checks. And I, I don't know if that's because I'm too conservative or if they're too aggressive. And, I, and maybe that's kind of one of my core questions for 2022. How does a lot of these deals that we talked about in the last 18 months kind of bear out in the next 12?
1: Exactly. That's what I'm curious about, too. And as reporters, I think we're going to need to change our strategy in ways that we probably already have as things got so noisy in 2020 and 2021, because we've been doing due diligence in what funding rounds we write about. Now we have to do due diligence in which funding rounds are probably like less about the funding and more about the startup.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah. 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 <clears throat> It, there's so much noise out there just from our perspective. I can't imagine having to kind of like, like have pre-information then pick and then go forth. Like, I mean, everything's moving so fast. It's, hmm. I, I wonder what the, a good signal will be for us to look for, to figure out how diligence is shaking out later in the year. If it will be like a higher failure rate or some fraud, maybe. I mean, that, that's a traditional sign of a market top. Perhaps we're close to that. I, I don't know, but I, I am curious. And this is a core question that I have for this year, which is, how do we kind of sniff out the mistakes?
2: I see a future episode. <laughs> One
0: thing that could happen this year is that there's so much money still. Like Andreessen just raised nine billion, and Northwest just raised three billion, and so forth. That you know, all these answers could be pushed out another year, just because there's enough momentum in the market today to not actually get us to answers about how diligence is impacting actual success rates from VCs. Because everyone looked like a, like a genius last year. Yes. Right. Everyone has huge markups. Everyone has great paper returns. They're they're crowing about to their LP base. It's just the other end of that equation that I don't know exactly when we'll get to the equal sign.
1: Totally. Well, I mean, we have the three views about this on TC plus and we'll probably keep doing opinion based shows coming up. It sounds like so everyone tweet at equity pod their hottest take and we will disagree loudly on a show probably yeah. at some point.
0: And, and also, you know, we have a lot of shows we're doing this year. You know, we do roughly three a week and there's, you know, a bunch of us on the show. And so if there's something you really want us to talk about or to dig into, We're always trying to make sure we're hitting on the most interesting things and we would love to have your input. So tweet us at EquityPod or EquityPod at TechCrunch.com. Shoot us a note. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, welcome to 2022, everybody. Equity's back and we're glad that you're here with us and uh, we'll talk to you on Friday. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye.